verses. Okay, so please hear uh, the word of our Lord. So the scripture says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul despair of seeking me any longer with the, within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David rose, went over, he and 600 of his men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. David lived in Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And David said to Achish, If I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me, one out in the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Okay, that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it's good to be here. And uh, Lord, we are grateful for your holy word. Lord, we believe that your word is true and it's powerful, it's effective to shape and change our hearts. We believe that through the power of your spirit, you do speak through your word, even through the preaching of your word, you speak. And Lord, that's what we want this morning. We want you to speak to us through your word, through preaching. Pray you might use this time to bring glory to Christ, help us to trust in him afresh. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so for those of us who were with us last week, you may remember the theme of our, serving, our sermon revolved around the New Testament encouragement to not grow weary in doing good. And this was the theme of the sermon because of the example we saw in our text last week from David, who was a young man uh, who was God's anointed king over Israel, yet for years lived on the run because the current king of the time, a man named Saul, was bitter, jealous, and paranoid towards David, even though David was nothing but good towards Saul. You may remember the reason why Saul was so bitter, jealous, paranoid, is that Saul began to understand that David was a threat to his power and his control. So we've read multiple times over the last several chapters of our study of 1 Samuel, where Saul made different attempts on taking uh, David's life. Like, this is an obsession for Saul. In 1 Samuel, you get the sense that Saul like, would wake up trying to figure out how he'd kill David. All day long, he'd try to strategize how he'd kill David. And then as Saul put his head to pillow at night, David was what he was thinking about. So in 1 Samuel, as Saul obsessively tried to kill David, this reality put David on the run. David and his men on the run, trying to escape the murderous hand of Saul. However, even though David was on the run for years throughout our study of 1 Samuel, we read how David continued to do good, even good towards King Saul, which could not have been an easy thing for David to do. I mean, can you imagine how weary David must have been to do good, especially good towards Saul? So text for Samuel, two places where he probably read most clearly about David doing good to Saul was in chapter 24, where David spared Saul's life in a cave. So rather than killing Saul, all David did was cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And as you remember, David did this, even though all those around David tried to convince him that he was to jump on the opportunity set before him and to take Saul's life. Which, by the way, can you imagine how much harder that would have been for David to do good? to do good even though the community around him is trying to convince him otherwise. So that's chapter 24. And then our text last week, chapter 26, 
We read a story that parallels a lot of chapter 24. Where in our text last week, David once again found himself in a place where he could have easily killed Saul. So if you were here last week, maybe you remember David is able to sneak into Saul's tent without anyone knowing it. And as David snuck, uh, snuck into the tent, Saul's trusty spear is actually thrust into the ground right at Saul's head. So it would have been nothing. It would have been really easy for David to go take the spear and take Saul's life. Especially considering, if you remember, last week, the counsel given to him was to do just that. So once again, the counsel around him was to take Saul's life. And in fact, the guy who gave this counsel to David even offered to kill Saul for David. Yet, chapter 24, again 26, David did not grow weary in doing good, and David spared Saul's life, even though Saul certainly did no good to David. Turn to text last week, David provided a good model, a good example really a good exhortation to help spur us on to likewise, to not grow weary in doing good, whatever good you may be doing. But now we get to our text this week, where we see David move from being weary to being defeated, despondent, depressed, burnt out, where emotionally appears he just could not do it anymore. So we left off last week and some other places in 1 Samuel concerning the model of David. There's such an encouragement to us, to inspire us. I think today's text, where we see David here, this is actually a, for a model for us to identify with, to identify with in weakness. How easy it can be to move from being weary to being defeated. If that is the intro, look back with me at our text during verse 1. As I mentioned, we're just going to walk through the passage, so keep your Bible open, please. So in verse 1, we see there's a bit of internal conversation that David was having in his own heart, which already, this is a red flag for us in our text that David, weary David, is getting counsel from his own heart. This is never a good thing. In our text, in David's own heart, he came to the conclusion that now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. So up to this point in 1 Samuel, no doubt, David, he was discouraged. There's no doubt that he was weary, but not like this. Up to this point in our study, David exhibited so much confidence and trust in the Lord, confidence in the promises the Lord made to him, Confidence in the timing of the Lord's work in his life. Confidence, indeed, that the Lord would bring forth justice. But in our text today, it was as if all the confidence dissipated, and the only thing he was left was with despair. Where David moved from being discouraged but trusting to defeated, seemingly overwhelmed by doubt. Where in our text today, David was convinced things were never going to get better. Things were never going to change. Seemingly convinced that the Lord actually was not fully with him. Because of that, David's heart convinced him that it was only a matter of time before Saul finally was able to capture and kill him. Particularly in the text, if he tried to stick around Israel much longer. Because David was so defeated, we see in the text, in his heart, he came up with a plan. A plan where he concluded there was nothing better for him to do than to just completely get out of the area and escape to the land of the Philistines. Now for a moment, let's pause and let's just remind ourselves who were the Philistines in 1 Samuel. They've actually come up multiple times in our study of this book. So we first met the Philistines in chapter 4. So remember how they captured the Ark of God? Only take the Ark of God and put it in the temple of their pagan god Dagon? which was a symbolic act where the Philistines believed that their pagan god, Dagon, had actually defeated the one true and living god of Israel. As you may remember that story, the Lord knocked over the huge statue of Dagon, falling prostrate before the Ark of God, 
which started a chain of events that eventually led the Ark of God being returned to Israel a few chapters later. That's where we first met them. Chapter 13, the Philistines went to war against God's people, and they were so successful in their attack against God's people that the people of God actually had to like, hide in caves and holes just to try to save their own lives. In fact, if you remember back chapter 13, that's really where the downfall of Saul happened. Remember how he performed that unlawful sacrifice, his attempt to try to manipulate the Lord and his attempt to defeat the Philistines? Chapter 14, more ongoing battles for God's people and the Philistines, where in this chapter God was able to provide a miraculous victory through the son of Saul, a man named Jonathan. Remember how the Lord confused the camp of the Philistines in a way that they started to panic and almost like started to attack each other? Chapter 17 is a famous passage of David and Goliath, right, the giant man Goliath, who was a Philistine. And that passage started out with God's people and the Philistines. Remember how they had a bit of like a staring contest with each other? Both on one side of, of, of hills, staring at each other, see who would make the first move to kick off the battle. Chapter 18, more ongoing battles between God's people and the Philistines, where David himself actually was able to lead God's people to some decisive victories over the Philistines then. Then finally, in chapter 21, which actually details a different time where David actually was not in a good emotional place, where he likewise fed, uh, fled to the Philistines, only for David to like barely escape with his life after he was spotted in the city of Gath. And for that, remember that story how David had escaped by basically putting on an acting hat. We started to act like mentally ill to help people keep uh, from identifying from him. So, so really throw out for Samuel. There's nothing positive about the Philistines. There's only been conflict and war. Conflict and war between God's people in this pagan nation. Yet here in our text today, down, discouraged, defeated, burnt out David, decided this was the best place for him to go. There was nothing better for him to do than to head right into this pagan land, right into the teeth of the ongoing enemies of God's people, the Philistines. In our text, as he put this plan together in the council's heart, he included that if he escaped to the Philistines, eventually Saul will despair, and he will stop trying to kill David. So that in the land of the Philistines, David could escape his hand. I mean, really, think about how defeated David is here at the start of our passage. I mean, he is so defeated. He is so filled with doubt that in his heart, he included that this is the best option for him to head right into the land of the ongoing pagan enemies of God's people. Which is mentioned, this is a plan he actually already tried a few chapters back in chapter 21, where he was barely able to escape his own life. Yet, yeah, this is where he goes. As we'll talk about this more at the end. But this is one of the many reasons why we can't take counsel in our own hearts, especially when we're feeling defeated. Far too often, our own hearts will just lead us to very foolish, sinful places. Verse 2, if you want to take your eyes there. With this plan in place, we see that David got up, took 600 of his men, and went to Achish, the son of Moak, who was the king of Gath. With Gath here being one of the capital cities of the Philistines. And seemingly here, this Achaz is the same Achaz who David just fled from in chapter 21. Right? Say it again. David's counsel in his heart concluded the best thing for him to do was not just to go to the land of Philistines, but actually to go right to Achish, the person he just had to flee from a couple chapters back. Right? David, he's not well here. Verse 3. We see as David came to Achish, that Achish actually received David and his men. We're going to get to why in just a second here. 
Then in verse 3, as David was received, he's actually able to live with Achish and Gath, along with all his men, his household, including his two wives, which, just let me remind you here, I mentioned this a few weeks back, we first met, or first learned that David had multiple wives, so this actually is sin in David's heart. This actually proves to be an ongoing sin for David throughout his life. He had sexual sin towards women. So even though we can learn a lot about David on the positive, like he's still a sinner. And we can learn a lot from the negative as well, including to not play around the traps of sexual sin, which David certainly did. Verse 4. As David lived in Gath, we see the information of this made his way back to Saul. And as Saul heard that David was in Gath, we read that simply no longer he sought to kill David. Now, we don't know exactly why. Perhaps Saul was afraid of the Philistines. So as much as he hated David and wanted David to die, he was just too risky for Saul to pursue him into the fallen land. Or maybe perhaps Saul no longer sought to kill David because maybe he thought the Philistines would do it for him instead. Or perhaps maybe Saul no, no longer sought to kill David because he was no longer a threat to Saul. You know, I think if Saul here probably had like PR guys who did a great job of using David and Gath to label him as a traitor, which chapter 30 seems to indicate. Whatever the reason, Saul gives up his pursuit. And I should mention here, this does prove that David actually does have some truth here as he took counsel in his own heart and fled to Gath. Like Saul, indeed, left him alone. And this actually is one of the dangers why taking counsel in your own heart can be just so, one of the reasons why it's so dangerous for us is often there's like elements of truth in them. Unfortunately, there are elements of truth that are just not married to trust in the Lord, which I think is true of David throughout chapter 27. There's not a lot of trust here. Different commentaries I read this week pointed out that David throughout this text, he's like relying on his own cunning insight rather than relying on the Lord, the Lord's word, which we know this is a temptation for us when we are burnt out. Verse 5, if you want to take your eyes there. After David and his men originally were with Achish and Gath, we see that David was hoping to relocate and go settle down out in the country. So we read that David went to Achish and said, Hey, Achish, you know, if I found favor in your eyes... You know, could you just give me, me and my men a place to dwell out in one of the country towns? You know, we don't have to live here with you anymore. We can go out to one of the country towns. And I think this actually is another indication of just how defeated David was here. You know, so he didn't head to, like, the land of the Philistines just for some, like, R&R, where he was hoping, like, to recharge his batteries a bit and then head back home, which is what he did in chapter 22. Remember when he fled to Moab, the home of his great-grandma, Ruth? I was there, recharged, but then went back to, into Judah. But here in the sense today, David... This is him like wanting to be a little bit more permanent. He's wanting to move out to the country and like just settle down and maybe plant some roots with no real intentions of heading back. Like he's so defeated. He's like waving the white flag here. Like he's giving up that one day he'll become king of Israel. He decides, you know, I'm just gonna live a nice quiet life out here in the country. Away from all the drama, all the heartache that came with the good that I was doing. Verse 6, David made this request. We see that Ashash agreed to it and gave to David Ziklag, which is a location that's now been lost to history. However, most scholars kind of think it was probably maybe like 15, 20 miles to the southwest of Gath. Perhaps for cunning David, just like far enough from Akesh that David could have a little bit more freedom to do his own thing out from under Akesh's watchful eye. So in text, as David and his men were given Ziklag, we read that up to this point in 1 Samuel, when it was written, that that area, actually, that area now belonged to the kings of Judah until that day. Which this information is actually setting up this text to say how the Lord is still at work, even through defeated and cunning David, in ways that the Lord is actually still going to use David to accomplish his will. So we'll get this more when we come to the end of our study of 1 Samuel. So even though David is kind of giving up doing good, the Lord's still doing good here. 
and is given the land to the kings of Judah. Keep on, verse 7. We read that as David and their men moved to Ziklag to put down roots, we see that they're in the country of the Philistines for a year and four months. Guessing far less than what David expected when they unloaded the ancient moving truck. Yet still enough time for a lot to happen. For the Lord to be at work here as he's pursuing David. Verse 8. This is where we see the reason why Achish was so willing to let David and his men enter into the land. And to give David and his men Ziklag to be their home. Now for a moment, let's just be mindful here. So David was just as much of a rival to the Philistines as they were to him. In fact, I would even argue that David is more of a rival to the Philistines. Simply because, like, David always won. Like, you know, if you have a sports team and the other team, like, your rival's always winning, you know how much you just hate that rival. So you can imagine how much the Philistines, how they hated David. I mean, David even got the win over their great hero, their great giant man, Goliath. So if you were a Philistine, can you just think, like, how much you would have despised David? Imagine how much you would have feared David. So here, why would Akesh let this victorious rival warrior into the land? And why is he so accommodating to David, you know, to even let him put down roots in Ziklag? Well, is what we read in verse 8. We see that basically David came to Akesh to be a mercenary, uh, to be a soldier of fortune for him, who in our text is willing to like, go and make raids, which we see in the text, raids he made against the Gerites, the Gizites and the Amalekites, each of tribes who lived in or near the Philistine land, which in our text were inhabitants of the land of old, as far as sure to the south in the land of Egypt. So verse 9, as David and his men would go on raids, what they do, they go and strike the land, they strike the tribes, and they strike them in such a way that they leave neither man or woman alive. But we read that they would spare the livestock, whether it be sheep, oxen, donkey, or camel. And as David would spare the livestock on the raids, we also see that he would gather together all the garments and he'd take back the spoils of war to Achish. Okay, now let's hit pause again here just to think through what's happening. And by the way, this is a little hard for us to know and interpret this best. So let me give you just maybe a few options of what's happening here. Option. This just further underscores that David's not in a great place. Like here he is, he's being a mercenary, a soldier of fortune for Achish where he's like killing Akesh's enemies in such a way that he's like wiping them out. And not only is he wiping them out, he's like pillaging them and gives to Akesh the spoil of war, which would have made Akesh like even that much more powerful. Second option, maybe so that's possibly what he's doing here. You know, he's still not doing well. Second option, as we see, David actually is doing well here. That perhaps he finally is coming back to his senses and is trusting in the Lord. So this is maybe not a sign of defeat, but a sign that the fog is lifted. So let's take back and think back to some of our Old Testament history. So in the book of Joshua, when God's people entered into the Promised Land, right, they were to wipe out all of the pagan tribes of the land. Then our study of 1 Samuel, remember how the Lord instructed Saul that he was to wipe out the Amalekites as part of God's just judgment on them for their wicked ways. So it's possible to interpret this what's happening here in the text of David leaving neither man nor woman alive. This is actually a part of God's just judgment through David. And David is just doing what Saul failed to do. So in the end, David wasn't strengthening the Philistines. Rather, he's just weakening some of the other enemies of God's people. In ways that going forward, they could transcribe more of their enemies on defeating the Philistines. So that's possible, what he's doing here through these raids. That's the second option. Then there's a third way to understand this. And this is actually, I tend to think, what's happening. Third, 
that possibly David is coming to his senses here, but he's trying to back his way out. But not back his way out by where he's like fully trusting the Lord. But at least for me, I think he's like trying to back out in a way he's trying to like trust in his own clever, cunning thoughts. Where he's trying to maybe like weasel his way out of the predicament that he just put himself in when he fled to the Philistines. Okay, now as mentioned, there was prior instructions to wipe out the tribes listed in our text today. So perhaps that instruction was still binding on David, although we don't get information in the text concerning whether or not this is binding for part of David's responsibility. However, what we do know is what Saul was told to wipe out the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. Remember how he also was instructed to wipe out all the livestock as well, whether it be sheep, oxen, donkey, or camel. And one of the failures of Saul in chapter 15, he spared the livestock. And that angered the Lord. So even if David was just trying to wipe out the various tribes listed in verse 8 as a part of obedience, which is debatable, depending on how you feel if this command is still binding on David, the act of David taking the spoils back to Achish, this seems to be much less debatable. At least to me, this really feels like David's being cunning here. He's being sly. He's being crafty. David is trying to manipulate Achish to win him over with the spoils. At least to me, I think this is a part of David trying to get himself or the jam he put himself in at the start of the text, where perhaps he sought to use some elements of obedience, like wiping out the tribes, but using that obedience almost as an outlet or an escape for David to start to back himself out of the jam. Now, I'll let you decide on your own which of these options was best was happening. As I mentioned, I think the third option actually was happening. David came to his senses, recognized what he did, recognized that he put himself and his men in a rock in a hard place. And now he's trying to figure his way out of it. Maybe happy to do the Lord's work, but also happy how the Lord's work can be used for him in cunning ways. Let's be honest. This is not us. Right? Don't we do this when we put ourselves in some type of jam? We put ourselves in some type of bad situation because of our own poor decision? Where we might be excited for some type of opportunity of obedience, but maybe we act on it for some mixed motives where we see the obedience maybe as an easy way to manipulate our way out to save face do the obedience not just for the Lord but also for ourselves keep going, verse 10 as David did his mercenary work, Achish we get reports from David to see where he was where he made the raid for that day and as Achaz asked for the report, David responded with something like, uh, yeah, today I went against uh, Negbed of Judah, or maybe I went against uh, Negbed of the Jezreelites, or you know, actually today I went against uh, Negbed of the Kenites. And so that's a report that he would give to him. Now a couple quick thoughts here, just to help understand what he's saying. So Negeb, this is actually a region of the south of the land of the Philistines. So this is a region like right on the border of Saul's kingdom, perhaps even into Saul's kingdom. So David shared the reports of where he went out. He would just say he went against the various tribes located in this region of Negbeg. Second, if this was actually what David was doing, if him going to raid against these tribes here, this actually would have been a sign the fog actually did not lift for him. Rather, this is a sign he still was defeated in a really bad place. And the reason for that is simply because what we see in 1 Samuel, that at least two of these tribes listed here in verse 10, the Jezreelites and the Kenites, these were allies to God's people. So chapter 15, we already met the Kenites, and we read them in a very favorable way, allies to God's people. Then we get to chapter 30, both those tribes are listed in ways that appears very favorably. 
So if indeed David is acting, making these raids against the tribes of Nagbed, not only was he fighting for his enemy, Akesh, but more than that, he actually would have been fighting against his allies. However, third thing I want to point out here, most scholars don't think actually David was telling the truth here. Most actually think he's lying here to Akesh. Verse 8, those were the tribes David made his raid against. So the report that David gave to Akesh, these are, these are false reports. It seemed to be a further attempt of David to be like cunning, deceitful, where he like lied and he made up stories about raids against the allies of Israel to try to cover up who he actually was raiding against. Now, let me mention here at times, deception might actually be the right thing to do. Okay, let me give you two classic examples. So the first is the story of Rahab. Remember that one, book of Joshua as well? Well, Rahab hid two spies of Moses. And as the enemies of God came to attack and came to Rahab's house to try to capture the spies, remember how she was deceptive towards them. And in her deception, she actually saved their lives. And because of that action, Rahab actually is lifted in the hall of faith through in Hebrews chapters 11. The second example just comes from the story of somewhat recent history, the story of Corey Tinboom and her family. It's a story, if you don't know that story, you really should look it up. It's a great story. Her and her families would famously hide Jews from the Nazis. And they're deceptives when the Nazis would came to the home. So at times, deception actually might be the right thing to do. But at least for me, for David, this feels maybe a little different here. This still feels a little bit more like David trying to dig himself out of the hole he put himself in. But once again, I'll let you decide here the heart that David had as he lied to Achish. Verse 11, keep going. As David gave his deceptive report to Achish, we read that once again, David would leave neither man nor woman alive from the tribes he actually raided to bring to Gath. And our text tells us that David would kill them all because he didn't want Achish to find out. He didn't want Achish to find out who he actually was raiding. And as he gave the spoils of the word, he was just saying they came from these other tribes as a way just to kind of provide cover. In our text, David tells us, or the text tells us that David did this because he continued to take further counsel in his own heart, thinking to himself, if he actually didn't kill all of the people that he went to raid, that eventually some of them would let Ashes know what was happening and say to him, David actually has done this here. I mean, if any of the tribes actually escaped, anyone actually survived, no doubt they'd tell Achish what David actually was up to, and he did not want Achish to find out of that. So he had killed them all. And to me, how the author presents this in the text is wanting to see David more trying to cover his own tracks still trying to dig himself out of the pit, still trusting in his own wisdom, his own cunning. Like, he doesn't wipe out the tribes purely for the Lord, but he does so in an attempt to save himself. And verse 11 tells us this is not the one-time thing that David did, where he lied once, deceived once, where he trusted his own cunning once, immediately felt bad about it and repented. Rather, we read that this was David's custom. All the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. I mean, as he went down this path, like, he had to keep going. Or I'm sure to cover up one deception, he had to create other deceptions that continued to snowball, where he thought and continued to think this was, was best. Before he knew it, this became his custom. Friends, the burnt out, defeated David in the text, he looks so different from the weary but trusting David that we read up to this point. Finally, our text ends, verse 12 where we read that David was successful in his cunning behavior, he was successful in his game of deception, because we read that Achish 
bought into what David was saying. He bought it in a way that he started to trust David. Where Achish now starts to think in himself that David has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. And because of that, he will always be my servant. Which indicates that Achish believed indeed David was attacking the allies of Israel who were located in the Negbeg region. Which certainly would have been true if, God, if he did that. He would have been a stench to God's people. Now, let's mention that in our text today. Now, as a close, I do have several thoughts for us concerning like feeling burnt out, defeated, despondent, which perhaps is some of you this morning. Like feelings that you're actually walked in here this morning, that you're currently living with. And it's because of that, I have a few things I just want to point out from the text for us. So first, so first, burnout is a real thing. It really is. Especially if there's like prolonged weariness that you have been carrying. Eventually, weariness might overcome you in such a way that you cross the line into burnout. Right? This, this is a reality we see in the scriptures. We're all weak. We all are frail. All of us in the end are nothing but dust. Which means all of us can fall prey to burnout. Like none of us can just go and go and go and go and never have it catch up to us. Eventually, we will get caught. Even if you're as great as David, you will get caught. And for us, I think this is especially true for us in the burnout culture we live in, where it's just so tempting for us to always be on the go, where we're running from one thing to the next to the next, where we have like little to no margin in life, where even if we like find downtime, we like give it to things like endlessly scrolling on social media, or like listening to one podcast after another after another, where we never let our minds rest. You know, even before sin entered the world, God created us to have rest. So how much more now do we need to be mindful that we need to rest and we battle against the effects of sin? Context of our passage, David's weary. Weary for always to be in the run that eventually caught up to him. But unlike us, like he didn't choose to put himself in that situation. Like he was forced to be on the run by Saul. But I say it again, even as great as David was, it caught up to him. And he crashed, where he started to trust the counsel in his own heart more than the counsel from the heart of God in his word. Which, by the way, let me mention here, chapter 22. After getting some R&R in Moab, remember in that story how the prophet came to David and told David it's the Lord's desire for David to go back to Judah, and he was to remain there. And her text, David, burnt out David, he started to trust his own counsel in ways that he's rejecting God's word. And he fled to Judah. Something that had been so hard for us to believe he would ever do. I mean, up to this point, over and over again, he's such a rock. He's such a great model. Trusting in the Lord. That he burned out. Not for us, because burnout is real, even to the best of us. We need to be wise with our time. We need to be wise with our schedule. We need to be wise on how we're investing in our energy to ensure that we're doing things that can help prevent burnout. Now, the negative might mean you might have to really start saying no to work. You know, after you put in an honest day's work, honest week's work, once that's fulfilled, you just, you just have to step away. For others, you might have to really consider cutting things out like social media and podcasts. Because all they're doing is getting your mind going, 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 going. And that's not sustainable. We need downtime. For so others, it might mean to take an honest look at your schedule, 
just start cutting out things that just are not necessary, just so you can have some margin. The positives, they cut things out that lead to burnout, create space to do things that can maybe prevent burnout, like engage in spiritual disciplines, like read your Bible, spend the time with the Lord in prayer, memorize scripture so the Lord can like fill you up when you're feeling weary. But it's not just spiritual disciplines we can engage in. Create space and go on like family walks. Play with your kids. Engage in meaningful ways with your spouse. Find th- things to do with friends that are enjoying, that are restful. Maybe it's just slow down enough to like take in a sunset or gaze at the stars. You know, one of the things that Jesus actually instructed us to do in the Sermon on the Mount was to watch the birds. When's the last time you've done that? Slow down in the burnout culture. Just watch the birds. And remember how the Lord provides for them. How much more will he provide for you? Furthermore, let me encourage you, take vacations. Particularly vacations that are restful, that are not on the go. Were you able to like, turn off your computer and pick up a book or a fishing pole? So by the way, my family, like we love camping. And if you have ability to camp, let me encourage you to do so. It slows you down. So again, we're all weak, frail. We are nothing but dust. We can only be weary for so long before we move into burnout, where we have despair, despondency, where we're overwhelmed with doubt. Live your lives in ways you're numbering your days by humbly being a good steward to trust that burn or to understand that burnout's real. So there's actually a second thing I want to mention here. So burnout comes with symptoms. And as modeled by David here in the text, burnout, like these symptoms, they really mess with us. And they can cause us to do some really foolish, hurtful things. So for us, it's important to know what, symptoms, uh, what the symptoms are. Help us like spot burnout. Stop it before it gets too far. And maybe not just spot burnout ourselves, but maybe more importantly, spot burnout in others. But this is one of the reasons why I wanted to connect as a church family. Like to help each other so we don't move from being weary and doing good into burnout. But let me quickly mention one of my favorite stories in the Bible that actually speaks towards that end. Remember the story of Moses and his father in law Jethro in the book of Exodus? So in that story, Moses is basically doing everything. Like, he's on the go, 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 go. Like, he has his hands on like basically everything within Israel. And this is not good for him. I'm sure it's not good for his family. And this actually wasn't even good for God's people as a whole. Like, for Moses to be on the go, 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 go. So in the story, as Jethro was observing his son-in-law Moses, he could see how weary Moses was. So he simply goes to Moses, Hey, Moses, what you're doing, it's not good. You're going to burn out. As Moses was lovingly rebuked by his father-in-law, he humbly accepted the criticism. So Jethro and Moses put together a much more sustainable plan for Moses that really benefited everyone. So I said again, we've got to help each other here. So one of the ways we can help each other is actually know some of the symptoms. Now, I'm sure there's more signs and symptoms than what I'm going to give you here, but from what we see in the text, I think there's three common ones. So first symptom you're burning out. It's just simply a trust in self. No, this doesn't necessarily mean you're burning out, but when you are burned out or burning out, this is actually very common, where you're like so defeated by life that the only person you trust 
is yourself. Where the only counsel that you receive, whatever life decision you're making, is the counsel in your own heart. Because in the end, you can't even trust the Lord with this. This is true of David in the text. This is the start of the passage here. We can see right away in verse 1 that something just is not right here with David. Rather than trusting the Lord, trusting his promises, David took counsel in his own heart decided it's best for him to head to Gath to find refuge. So, friends, when we are burned out or burning out, so we go into survival mode. And in survival mode, often the only person we trust is ourselves, where we let no one speak into our life. Second symptom of burnout is just becoming, having more and more like irrational behavior. So we're burnt out, burning out. We start to do things like in our right minds we would never do. In fact, in our right minds, we'd be shocking if we did these things. That, that's a real part of the story today. Shocking, irrational behavior here by David. Shocking at the start to see him deny the Lord and leave Judah. After we just saw him show such trust in the Lord throughout 1 Samuel, including chapter 24 and 26, where he encouraged others to boldly trust in the Lord in his time as well. Shocking to see David leave Judah. And then further shocking, see him pick things up and head to Gath, the home of his great enemies, the Philistines. Then in Gath, shocking, as an attempt to save his own life, he hires himself out to be a soldier of fortune. Can you imagine the risk that came with that? He's, he's clearly not thinking well here. He's not acting rational. He's not connecting the dots. He's not seeing a bigger picture. He's not able to put together a thoughtful plan. In survival mode, he's acting irrational. Where it's so hard to say, this is the same guy? Third symptom. You just have a very hopeless outlook on life. And that's really is one of the biggest signs of burnout. You're just utterly hopeless. Where you feel like the fog will never lift. Things will never get better. I think we see this in two places in the text. First is when David concluded at the start, that if he didn't leave, Saul eventually would fulfill his quest and kill him. Second place, I think we see the hopelessness of David is when he sought to put down roots in Ziklag. Both these acts, I think there's David waving the white flag here. He's so defeated, he's lost hope. The fog was so heavy, he didn't think it ever would lift. As mentioned, there's more symptoms and signs than what I gave you here. If you have these signs, it doesn't necessarily mean you're burned out, but I do think these things are common. These things we are need to be mindful of for ourselves and to those around us. Which actually leads to the last thing I want to say here before we close. Which is if you're seeing these symptoms in your life or maybe seeing these symptoms in the life of others. So what are, what are we to do then with this? Third. Friends, I got good news for you. The love of Jesus is there for people who are burnt out. So here, here's typically two things that we do when we're defeated. Both which David models for us. Is one, we actually simply try to stay there when we're defeated. And we live some type of shell of a life. No hope, no joy, no purpose. Just like waiting for our time to die, which is David at the beginning of the passage. Or what we try to do is try to like dig ourselves out by our own strength, our own wisdom, our own effort. Which to me, say it one last time, this feels like what David's doing at the end of our text. But neither of these options, what we typically do, neither are good. But friends, there is a good option for us. A really good option. In fact, this is the only option that we have. Friends, when we are burnt out, defeated, despondent, weak, 
Listen, there's good news. There's a Savior for us. A Savior who loves his people, whose name is Jesus. And Jesus is actually the one who would identify with us in every way, yet without sin. He can identify even in our weakness. Friends, this is good news. It's good news that even though Jesus is without sin, for our sake, he became sin to take on the punishment of our sin, which he took upon himself on the cross to die in our place, only to rise again from the dead, to prove that indeed he is the victor. He is not defeated. He is the victor, where he puts to death sin, death, and the devil. They all have been defeated by Jesus. And Scripture tells us that Jesus came to die for us and to rise again. As mentioned, he came to identify with our weakness. He identifies with us. He knows that we are nothing but dust. And because of that, please hear what he cries out to us from Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me and learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, Know that as you come to Jesus, even when you are completely defeated, Matthew 12 goes on to tell us some more good news. A bruised reed, he won't break. A smoldering wick, he's not going to quench. He's not going to beat us down. He's not going to shame us. He's not going to embarrass us. He's not going to, how dare you? Rather, in his love, he's going to care for us. So, friends, today, if you walk through the door waving the white flag of defeat, there's good news. Good news. If you, by faith, turn to Christ, he will be your strength in your weakness. Friends, you can trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. And Lord, I do pray for those here who are maybe walked in just defeated. Whatever reason, they may be defeated. Lord, I pray that you would pour grace on them in ways that they would run to Jesus. That they would trust in Jesus. Lord, we pray through the power of your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that in your grace and your mercy you would minister to them right now. That you would help them to hope in Christ. The one who defeated sin, death, and the devil the one who always has victory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.